0: Hey guys, good to see everybody this weekend. We're in a brand new series, and this is the third week. It's called Small Words with Big Impact. And we're looking every week at just one word that can change your life. Remember, we started with the word no, and how that one word can begin to declutter your life and make space for God. Then we looked at the word yes, That no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus, and we can say yes every day to God, yes every day to life. I'm going to tell you the word for this week, and it's the hardest word of the whole series. It's going to strike at your pride. Some of you are not going to like this word at all. It's the word sorry. No, not oops, Not like my bad, oh no. It's like my rotator cuff surgery, like going under the knife, like examining myself with unflinching honesty and confessing with real humility and making things right, like grace, like surgery for my soul. No, it's a really simple word, but people find amazing reasons to avoid it, and honestly, some of you have not said this little word for years. Uh, let me start here. <clears throat> several, several years ago, like 30 years ago in Savannah, Georgia, a friend was looking at me, and it was hot in the summertime. He said, you got a tick on your leg. Now, I'm not a doctor. I, I didn't know what a tick looks like. Just looked like a little random spot on the skin to me. My friend said, I'll take that out. So he got out a pair of pliers and a little chainsaw and I I courageously endured it. He took it out and saved my leg. I remember another time here that one of the staff came to me and came in the office and said, Rick, you've got a bolt in your tire. Have you looked at it? There's a big steel bolt in your tire. Now, you'd think I would have noticed there was a giant bolt in my tire, but you'd be wrong. I took it to the auto shop and the guy said, you got a big bolt in your tire, how'd it get there? I said, I got no idea. Maybe the tire was like that when I bought it, but he took it out and saved my tire. Now imagine that I would have said in either of those cases, I don't wanna be bothered to mess with that tick or that bolt, it's no big deal. My life is still manageable, it'll probably go away by itself. Or imagine that I would have said to my friend or the mechanic, why did you tell me I had a tick? You're shaming my body, you're shaming my tire, your car shaming me, you're making me look bad. Now we don't, we don't do that with our bodies and we don't do that with our tires and we don't do that with our businesses or our houses. Oh no, we only do that with our souls with our character. You know, maybe, maybe you've got a resentful temper, or you have an undisciplined tongue, or you've got a habit and a problem with lust, or you live in bondage to gossip all the time, or you're shackled to greed and selfishness every day. Your your real God is money. That's your identity. That's your security. People who know you well, they can see it as clearly as my friends saw the tick on my leg or my staff saw the bolt in my tire. But telling you would not be welcomed by you. So you go on and live a respectable double life. You go to church. You pray, especially when you need something. You you believe, although you doubt a lot too. Sorry is a word you use to smooth over relational unpleasantness, to try to control people not to deliberately face the full ugly truth about the state of your soul so i keep my character defects kind of hovering vaguely in the background i don't systematically examine myself for them i mean rick who would do that i don't make a priority of seeking god's help to remove them no matter what the cost i don't invite other people to help me to look at these hidden areas You know, well, Rick, a lot of other people don't do it either. God's okay with my not doing that, isn't He? Maybe not. I want to tell you at the beginning of this message, right now, with as much love as I can, you have a tick on your leg, you have a bolt in your tire. Now, will you make asking God to deliver you at any cost the great priority of your life, or will you pretend it's not there and just hope it goes away And say, I don't want to have to look at that. It'd be too painful. I don't want to. You know, there's a strange and scary story in the New Testament that tells us how high the stakes really are. In the earliest days of the church, just when the church is getting started in Jerusalem, there's a couple in that community. It's a husband and wife. They're named Ananias and Sapphira. We, we don't know what first drew them into the church or what attracted them to Jesus, but there's something about the church that appeals to them. And one of the most unusual aspects of the early church was its generosity. Most people in the early church were really poor, but some people had great resources and would share them. We, we read about a guy like that named Joseph. He sold a field that he owned, He bought the money, brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet to use for the community there, for the church. People thought so highly of Joseph, they started calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because they were going through a big, bad time of poverty and hardship with the Roman government. Ananias and Sapphira, like Joseph, you know, they've got great resources. And here's what happened next in Acts chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, come on, let's play this out a little bit. They see how other people with resources are giving their resources away to the church. Maybe they feel some pressure to give and yet kind of resent it. They see Joseph get a new name, Barnabas. And maybe they feel a little jealous about the attention he's getting. Well, they want to be generous, but they also want to be rich. They want to be loved, but they also want to indulge their jealousy. They want to be celebrated, but they want to deceive to get it. So they've got divided hearts. And hey, we can be like that. We want God. We really do but we also want what we know God is opposed to. So Ananias gets this idea, and he thinks, we could take a field we own, take some of the money from selling it, give it to the church, but we could keep back some of that money for ourselves. Wouldn't be lying exactly, not really. We don't have to say we're giving it all. It'll just look like we are. We just know people will think we're giving it all away. We can have a false reputation for generosity. We'll indulge our greed. We'll avoid the pain of exposure of our jealousy and resentment. Hey, we we can have the admiration of the church while we secretly betray the values we pretend to uphold. It'll be great. You know, a man said once, I'm trying to think of his name, Branks, I think his name was, giving out of your surplus doesn't make you generous. It just makes your selfishness more tolerable. Giving while you're in need or lacking is what pleases the Lord. That was William Branks that said that. So he tells his wife, Sapphira, uh, this is a key moment in the story because she could have said to Ananias, hey, buddy. There's a tick on your leg. There's a bolt in your tire. There's a defect in your soul and character. I'm getting out the chainsaw. It's coming out now. We're not going to do this. Instead, she says, okay, good idea. Now, this is what a great writer, Neil Pladdington, says. He calls it the sin of conniving. That's a really important kind of a sin. It's very destructive. We pretend not to notice our own character defects. Good connivers don't even acknowledge they're conniving. They just connive. The apostle Peter finds out about this lie, and Peter confronts Ananias directly. He makes it very clear that the deepest sin here isn't the jealousy or the resentment, even the greed. In fact, he says to Ananias, man, man, You could have kept all the money you wanted. Nobody was holding a gun to your head. You didn't have to sell the field. The real sin here was deceit. It was the decision to live a double life. When Ananias heard this, he dropped down dead. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. A couple hours later, in walks his wife, Sapphira, Comes in, same conversation with Peter, same results. Boom, she falls down, dead. And they carry her body out of the church. And the text says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these things. Well, duh, no kidding. We do know that Ananias and Sapphira were flawed members of the Jesus Church. The text does not say they went to hell. So why in the world does the Bible make make that story and, and present it in Scripture? Now remember, when the Bible was written, it's in the real early days. They're trying to grow the church. Hearing stories about people keeling over in the church dead doesn't seem to me like a good recruiting strategy. Come to church this weekend. You might die. Now here's what I think was going on. The early church was a community of unprecedented spiritual power, power to heal, power to forgive sin, power to break down ethnic barriers between groups that had been prejudiced and separated and hated each other, power to love. You know, power can be great, but power is always dangerous. It, it's always important to know how power operates. Ever complain some electronic you own isn't working? Only to have some smart aleck examine it and tell you, hey, it's not plugged in, or it's switched off. That's happened to me a few times. Here's what's happened with the early church because the Holy Spirit came, the human race got plugged into a source of power it had not known since the Garden of Eden. Now, how does spiritual power work? Spiritual power flows when people get honest about their flaws and sin and need for God. Now, we tend to think it's all about being great or wise or strong or smart. But actually, the power of God really flows through people when they get serious about acknowledging their weaknesses, their their confusion, their guilt, their sin, their need for God. And God's really clear about this. God says to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, church people think they have to show people how strong we are. But no. A community of people, a family, a connect group, and especially a church, is a spiritual ecosystem, a spiritual power grid. And we forget about this and think we have to look better than we are And that kills the church. You know, when we all get honest, when we share our real stories, our real struggles, our character defects, and our real time problems, well, it increases the flow of the Holy Spirit's power. I I messed up this week. I'm tempted right now. That That encourages people with other problems. Sins get named, people get known, people get loved and people get healed. It's so fascinating. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit flowing in human beings in John chapter 7, kind of like we talk about electrical current flowing through wires. When you and I hide, it decreases spiritual power. It blocks. It impedes honesty and change and grace. Then other people are led to hide, too. And we all sense it when people are just wearing masks when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost God started a new community the church where spiritual power flowed with unprecedented voltage and the story of Ananias and Sapphira is the first story of hiding and deception in the early church it's very much a repeat of hiding and deception that occurred in the Garden of Eden and you know and here too in a really visible way we see it Like in the Garden of Eden, ends in death. It always ends in death. Here's part of why this story made it into the Bible. Do not make your ultimate fear the fear of dying. Fear living the wrong life. Fear becoming the wrong person. Fear hiding. Fear losing your soul. But when the text says not once but twice, great fear sees them all we look at that today looking back and say, gosh, that must have been really unpleasant. No, not really. It's just sanity. Ironically, it's people who know grace who know that best. There's an old song, some of you can remember, called Amazing Grace. And one of the verses says, was grace that taught my heart to fear. I have folks that I know and love who are in A.A., Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, they live in the knowledge and healthy fear that apart from the everyday, moment-by-moment grace of God, they are just one choice, one drink, away from hell and death. God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, they pray. Such people need a community of intense spiritual power, (coughs) the kind of power that comes only with honesty, and confession, and thorough cleansing. That's the church Jesus came to start. And I have to tell you, gang, I'm kind of tired of that power being present in places like a 12-step community and not present in God's church, which is the place AA was born. And you'll help us become that kind of a church or you'll help us stop it, one or the other. But you can't voice this decision. We're all going to get hit or we're going to get real. <clears throat> now, in the time that's left in this message, I want to walk us through how to become the kind of people, this kind of good people. What, what does it mean to live the word sorry with deep spiritual power in front of God, in front of others? It's not rocket scientists. It's just hard. It's just hard. Three steps. Number one. I have to do a fearless, searching, moral inventory. That's it. The, the psalmist put it like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See, I don't do this alone. I do this with God. I ask for God's help. I set aside time to be alone. So I use a little bit of a framework, and often when I do, I use what has been known for many, many years in the church as the seven deadly sins, you know, pride, anger lust, envy, gluttony, greed, and laziness. And I think all of us are tempted with all of them. I say, God, help me see where these are in my thoughts and in my behavior. Now, is that painful, Rick? Oh, dear God, just like surgery. It's intensely painful. And I want to say a word about why you should do it. What does our world really need most? Well, honestly, not a lot, not a lot. We don't need better houses or better laws or better medicine or better government. You know, we honestly need first, better people. Nothing gets better till I get better. And nothing's gonna get better for you in your life, in your marriage, till you get better. And the good news is you can make a great contribution to this. So where do you start? Who Who do you have the best shot to make it into becoming a better person. A friend, a roommate, a spouse, a boss, one of your kids, the person you're sitting next to right now. Oh, no, no, no. You have the best shot at doing that in you. For me, it's me. I get the tick removed from my leg because I'm responsible for my leg. I get the bolt removed from my tire because I'm responsible for my tire. I get the sin dealt with in my soul because I am totally responsible for my soul. Nobody else. Well, after that moral inventory, it's time for the second step. I confess my defects to God, to myself, and another person. This is from the book of James, writing to the early church. He says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. You'll notice the connection between the practice of confession and people and the power for healing. Something happens when people get real. Power flows. I confess to God, to myself, and another person. Those three, God, me, and another person. Now guess which one of those three is the toughest? I'll guarantee you the hardest is to say what you need to say to another person because the other person's looking me right in the face. And I understand most people will balk at this, so I'll give you a reason or two to do this second step. We would all like to have fewer problems in life. So what would you say is the number one creator of problems in your life. Well, it's you, Sparky. It's me. You. I. We're the biggest problem. And the good news is that together with God's help, you can pursue the transformation of the number one source of your problems. You. Me. I know. I know. I know a lot of people are thinking right now or saying, I don't need to do this. God can forgive me without me telling another person what I've done wrong. Well, of course He can. He's God. He can do anything. But I'll tell you a strange thing. When I know I'll have to face the pain, the embarrassment, the humiliation of telling my friend about my sin, oddly enough, it makes me less likely to name drop, to lie, to lust, or pout because I know I'm going to have To face the pain of telling that person I don't want to face that see I would not want to do life without having a fully disclosing friend to whom I could say anything I hope you have somebody like that now you should do that only with somebody you've known well and trust explicitly only somebody you fully trust <coughs> don't walk up to a stranger sometime this week and said hey my pastor said I'm supposed to tell you the dirtiest darkest sin I've ever committed so here it comes don't do that it may be you want to find a really good counselor somewhere you know that you can fully trust with your confidentiality and I'll tell you something else as long as I carry around a secret I carry a burden you are as sick as your secrets. It works like this. When I keep a secret from you, even if you tell me you love me, I'll be thinking, yeah, but you wouldn't love me if you knew this about me. See, you you can only be loved to the extent you're known. You can only be fully loved if you are fully known. And God made the church to be a place where people can be fully known and fully loved and fully healed. And I'll tell you something else, gang. When people hide, people die. When people get real, people get healed. So I confess to God, to myself, and another person. And then there's a third step in this process of living out sorry. Number three, I do whatever I can to make things right that I've done wrong. I do what I can Now, this goes way back in the Bible. It's a principle. It's not rocket science. There's a passage in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that lists ways that people in Israel sin, you and I as well. It says, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must make restitution in full. Now, the purpose behind taking a moral inventory, doing a confession, and making amends It's not that you have to do it to get God to forgive you. It's not given even to smooth out relationships, although very often it will bring reconciliation, healing, and forgiveness in amazing ways. But at its core, it's the way that transformation and redemption work. It's, you know, it's how you know you receive grace to become a different person. It's a funny thing, but if I name drop or gossip or indulge in lust or lie, then I know I have to tell somebody about it and I'm going to need to set it right. Boy, I'm less likely to do that stuff than if I know I get to keep all that a secret. So I want to mention two barriers that could trip you up. One of them is this thought is going to come to you. Comes to me, comes to everybody. I don't really need to do this. I know there are moral train wrecks here. There are murderers, there are thieves, there are jailbirds, there are adulterers, kidnappers, addicts. They need it, but my life is manageable. Now you put yourself in the category of being a conventionally decent person. No, not perfect, not a train wreck. I'm a conventionally decent person. By the way, it was conventionally decent people who were Jesus' biggest enemies. It was conventionally decent people who put Him on a cross, conventionally decent people who were killing the church. Speaking as a recovering, conventionally decent person, I don't need less help from other people with my sins. I need more help. I'm more likely to be blind to my own sin. We all are. Another barrier, I'll tell you, gang, the evil one will put this thought in your mind. I know I should do this. I know I ought to do this. I know God wants me to do it. I know I need to do it, but I just don't want to do it. Well, duh, of course you don't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. What in the world, though, does want to do it have anything to do with it? Where in the Bible does it ever say, thou shalt do only what thou wantest to do? Hey, if you're serious about following Jesus then I don't want to do it died a long time ago as the ultimate criteria for your decisions. You know, if you're still allowing I don't want to do it to trump Jesus' call on you to do it, then you might want to think about whether or not you're really following Jesus. Is there an easier way, Rick? Is there a softer way? No, it's kind of like dying. That's why the Apostle Paul says... I've been crucified with Christ. That's why he said I die daily. But the thing about resurrection is, if you want to experience resurrection, you kind of have to die first. Now to help us put a stake in the ground and to drive this home, Jesus gave to his church and gives to you and I two great practical uh, things we can do to keep that thought alive that we can experience. The joy of people being baptized is one of them. This is an expression, uh, an enactment of having been crucified to my old man and now I'm burying him in the grave in water baptism and rising in resurrection to new life. See, I've invited Jesus into my heart and now as public evidence, I'm following the Lord in baptism. And if you never made that decision to be crucified to your old self, to your old life, to make this Jesus your forgiver, your friend, your Savior, your new life, your source of power, and your guide, you can do that today. You can ask Him right here, right now. You can confess and repent and invite Jesus Christ to come right into your heart. God loves that. This could be your year to stand up, to follow the Lord after accepting Him in baptism and declare to the world, hey, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have Him as my friend, though the rest of my life and through this world and my hope for life eternal in the next world to come. I got it. I promise you, if you'll do that, we'll cheer you on like crazy. That's what we live for, to see people come to Christ. That's that's baptism, the great celebration, the great expression of the drama of redemption and salvation. We do that only one time as an expression of our new faith in Christ Jesus. Now, The other practice Jesus gave the church was communion. Communion we do regularly as long as we live. Jesus said, my body broken for you, my blood poured out for your sin. The crucifixion is presented here again, the resurrection again. Don't take communion as a conventionally decent person. Take it as somebody with no pride, no reputation, no stature in the church, no complacency, no entitlement, Because you've got a tick in your leg and a bolt in your tire and a death in your soul. Here in the Church of Jesus, plugged into the reality of the Spirit, there is power. Here, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.